Well, good morning, sinners. Good morning, saints. It's theology time. I, I get these wonderful passages. And so, you know, my wife's always, make it practical. Make it practical so somebody can take it. So yeah, last week was practical, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord. With all your heart, mind, soul, and body, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I hope that was fairly practical for you. Today will be practical. So we've been walking through the book of Matthew, and sometimes what happens is that we sort of get distant because it takes so long, and we lose the, the period of time. And I want to reset the scene for you. And uh, it wasn't too long ago, according to Matthew, not according to our schedule, but according to Matthew, that we were at Palm Sunday. Jesus had just entered Jerusalem as the, the king of Israel, but his entry was not altogether triumphant, so to speak. Some of the people in Jerusalem uh, were not uh, well, especially the leaders were not so enthusiastic, but there was this group, this mass of people visiting the city for Passover who were, not to mention the people who would follow Jesus around everywhere he went. We know that the leaders of the nation had already planned to put Jesus to death, according to Scripture. The matter had now become very personal after Jesus marches right into the temple, he tosses the tables, he kicks out the, the money changers, and he appears there now daily for the last week of his life to teach. This is all Matthew chapter 21 and 22. This is what's taking place. This is the last week of Jesus' life. As he's teaching in the temple, he's confronted by the leaders of the people. These leaders come from a very broad spectrum uh, of theological and political points of views. You have the Pharisees who are on the far right. You have the, the Sadducees who are on the far left. And they, first of all, they confront Jesus directly about his authority. Who do you think you are and who sent you basically are the questions that they throw at him. Then, and the essence of these two questions, you know, Jesus takes a look, kind of stands back, and he actually refuses to give a direct answer based on their refusal to commit themselves on the issue of the authority of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist, the guy who baptized Jesus? Well, you know, uh, if they regarded John the Baptist as from God, that is the religious rulers, if they did that, then they had to accept Jesus as Messiah because John introduced Jesus to the people as the Messiah. So Jesus throws the question back at them. And if they regard John from God, well, now they have a problem. Uh, if they reject John's authority which they're inclined to do, but they don't do it audibly because they don't want to take the heat or incur the wrath of the mass of the people because it's the people who believe John to be a prophet who was sent by God, who spoke for God. So this is what was going on in his parable of the tenants in, in chapter 21. Jesus did answer the questions of the leaders, but he does it in a very indirect way. He does it from a parable, and he indicated that he's not just merely a prophet like John, but he's actually the Son of God. And as such, he has the authority of God himself, for he was God, but he also had the authority of the Father who sent him. But there was more. And he went on to indicate <clears throat> that his rejection by the leaders of Israel would lead to their removal, their destruction, and, and horror of horrors, that their leadership roles would now be filled by Gentiles. That's what the whole parable was about. They heard it. They understood it. They heard what Jesus was saying. And so now the rejection of Jesus is fueled by even a greater personal animosity. It was very, a very personal issue with the leaders of Israel. 
They had coolly planned to destroy Jesus beforehand. They couldn't wait to get their hands on him. They couldn't wait to make him look like a fool in front of people. They tried, but they were unsuccessful. And so now they, they resort to even a more devious approach. And they had come to the decision that, you know, they couldn't handle Jesus, especially in the light of the broad support, uh, uh, which he still had among the masses of the people. So they plan a course of action that would legally kill Jesus in, in, uh, in spite of the support of the masses of the people. So simply put, they try to catch Jesus with his words. They try to entrap him to make a statement against Rome so that the political authorities, the governor of Rome, would arrest him and put him to death for treason. That's all they tried to do. Let's get him out this way. And the first question looked like it, you know, it couldn't fail to incriminate Jesus. They asked Jesus whether or not they, as Israelites, should pay taxes to Caesar. You know, would the king of Israel, would this so-called Messiah, who was foretold to be coming, throw off, the to throw off the chains of the Gentile rulers, would he actually advocate paying taxes to such a pagan as the Roman Empire? And the Jews couldn't conceive such a thing. And so Jesus' answer to that question rocks them because it failed to achieve their intended purpose because their hypocrisy now is exposed and because Jesus actually taught that taxes should be paid to pagan kings. They couldn't get their head around that. Of course, the statues see what's going on. They step up. Um, they think it's their golden opportunity and they would seek to prove their point. Look at Jesus. There is no such thing as a resurrection. And now remember, this is all happening in one day. So you got this back and forth going on. And uh, they're going to use Jesus, who's this greatest teacher of the day, to prove their, their theology, so they thought. But Jesus' answer showed that they had not thought their theology carefully through. And they based their whole argument on the passage from the law of Moses. They had wrongly assumed that life in the kingdom would be exactly like life on earth. They had assumed that marriage would continue on in the resurrection and in the future days. And, and Jesus, he corrects this error. And he also demonstrated that Moses could not be cited as rejecting the truth of a resurrection from the dead, which the Sadducees were saying, because Jesus uses Moses' own writings that he viewed God as the God of those who died, but yet who he still considered alive. Moses not only failed to fit into their theological scheme, he refuted it, the Sadducees get shot down by Jesus in his argument and theology, and they walk away. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. It's intense. There's all this mental backlash going back and forth. Jesus is going to be crucified on the Friday. He will rise again on the Sunday. He's in a long, drawn-out conversation with these religious leaders. They're in the temple. There's people all over the place. They're incensed by the fact that he teaches contrary to them. That's what Jesus is doing. They're incensed by the fact that he has power that they don't have. They're incensed by the fact that he is popular with the people and they can't seem to get that popularity. They want to get rid of him. That's what's going on. That's the context of when we're looking in Matthew. And so they've heard three parables on Wednesday. They've asked three questions and the conversation with the religious leaders is about to end. But now there's one more question, but it doesn't come from the religious leaders. No, it's Jesus. And he turns the tables and he begins to question them in front of everybody. And the purpose of the question is to make it very clear the identity of the Christ, the Messiah. 
So in case you didn't know, when we hear the word Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, like Machalski, right? That's not his last name. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. So when we refer to the Christ, we mean the Messiah. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, Matthew chapter 22, you can pick it up in your Bibles. While the Pharisees, they gathered together, they asked him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What a question. Actually, it's probably the most important question of all questions. What do you think of Christ? What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? Because when it comes to opinions about who Jesus Christ is, the world has never lacked a variety of suggestions. In fact, 108, in approximately 180, the Sanhedrin records that Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. A few hundred years later, another, uh, uh, there came to power in the Roman Empire a man by the name of Julian the Apostate. We have our own Julian here, but he's not an apostate, thank goodness. But Julian the Apostate, who ruled from 361 to 363, Julian was known as an adversary of Christianity. And he wrote this, interesting enough. Jesus has now been celebrated for about 300 years. <coughs> Having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, <laughs> okay, unless anyone thinks that a very great work to heal lame blind people and exorcise demoniacs in villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. Oh yeah, okay, so he hasn't really done anything except for heal people and set people free. That's all. Some of the great philosophers of the world looked at Jesus as the best of men. A Rousseau, for example, who wrote, when Plato describes his imagery of righteous men loaded with all the punishments of guilt yet meriting the highest rewards of virtue, he describes exactly the character of Jesus Christ. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Ralph Waldo Emerson, not a believer himself, said Jesus is the most perfect of all men that have yet appeared on the earth. Napoleon actually said of Jesus that he is the emperor of love. For you philosophers, falafels and philosophers, John Stuart Mill said he was the guide of humanity. H.G. Wells wrote, when I asked which single individual has left, when I was asked which single individual has left the most permanent impression on the world, the manner of the questioner almost carried the implication that it was Jesus of Nazareth. I agreed. Jesus stands first. And so it's interesting because even those who don't believe in him, there's almost this kind of condescending patronization that says he's the best of all men. He's a great man. He's a great teacher, a great moral person. But the other side of that is that underneath it all, there's this insipid denial that he is anything more than just the best of men. And it's always been that Christianity has found its most violent detractors and its most aggressive attackers. When it comes to people questioning our faith, basically, what they do is they try to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. This is your theology lesson for today. That is the most attacked position of our faith. The major emphasis of those who work to deny the reality of Christianity is what they do is they go to attack the deity of Jesus Christ and emphasize that Jesus is just a man and nothing more. Muslim theology teaches that Jesus was a prophet, however, not equal to that of Moses or Muhammad. And his religion was Islam, not Christianity. And he didn't die on a cross, but it was a, there's a substitutionary theory out there. It could have been Simon of Cyrene or 
even Judas took his place on the cross. A very interesting concept. The Center for Spiritual Awareness, um, led by Roy Eugene Davis, says Jesus was an enlightened soul and men must be awakened to their own Christ nature within them. Christian science teaches that Jesus was a mere man who demonstrated a divine idea, but his blood cleanses nothing. Freemasonry says we tell the sincere Christian that Jesus was but a man like us. Harry Krishna, which is interesting. If you don't know what they are, it's I was blown away in Eastern Europe. We saw a whole bunch of them in one of the cities that we're in, and they're doing their dance. They're all shaved. They're all wearing a bright orange thing. They've got a little unique ponytail off their head. The Harry Krishna says that Jesus is just another guru. Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? They teach that Jesus Christ is the created being, Michael. Mormons say that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. Scientology teaches that Christ achieved as a man, and they say a state clear, but not the highest state of an operating veteran. Similar, basically, the spirit of soul. He was almost, but not, you know, unique wordage. Buddhism regards Jesus as the enlightened one who dedicated his life to the welfare of human beings. The Unitarians teach that Christ was a man. All false systems have a problem with the unique identity of the deity of Jesus Christ. And this is where the battle lines are ultimately drawn in terms of the Christian faith. This is almost a sermon on apologetics. These misrepresentations and misconceptions are not new. They have in fact existed in the time of Jesus. They are essentially behind the scenes in the text that we're reading today. And, and the Jews believed in a non-deity Messiah. They believed that their Messiah, that their Christ, would be a human, political, military leader. And this text that we're reading today comes to a correct, a very serious error. And Jesus does it himself. And so he confronts the crowd gathered there with the pronouncement that he's the Messiah. In fact, he's more than just human, is exactly what he says. He's saying he is God. God, man, put together. And that's the essence of this passage when you read it. In other words, it's funny because that Pastor Andrew, he texts me, goes, hey, what, what are you preaching on? You know, should I read it for, for, uh, for prayer, for healing? And I just, I think I responded, ha, good luck. <laughs> you know, I'm like, how do you get healing out of this one? But in, in essence, you know, when you start thinking about it and you start milling it through, you actually do. In other words, you know, Jesus looks at him and says, you thought the Messiah is going to be a man. But I'm telling you that he's also God. And your failure to understand that, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders, is an indictment. And it's the cause of your own personal judgment. And you ask me by what authority I did these things way back when, you know, when the day began. But now I'm telling you by what authority. And the authority is that I am more than a man, basically, is what he's saying. I'm God. Now, this is what's going on on the temple. Now, this section from verses 41 to 46 is the answer to the question back in chapter 21, verse 23, when they said, by what authority? It's at the end of the conversation he gives the answer. This is the authority, and it comes in a very stunning way. Looks at them, he says, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Great conversation. Up till this point, they're throwing it at him. He turns the conversation around and says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, their answer right away is, well, he's the son of David. Now, for, for us in our culture, we're not really resonating with what's going on here. 
But it's a question about Scripture. It's a Scripture which is understood as speaking of the Messiah. And, and Jesus is about to quote that Scripture, a Scripture which the Pharisees actually knew very well because they taught on it. Every Orthodox Jewish scholar interpreted the passage as referring to the Messiah that Jesus is about to throw at them. They believed that the Messiah would come as a mighty king and establish his kingdom like David. He would defeat Rome. He would defeat all the other enemies. He would humiliate them as his, and have them sitting at his feet and he would rule them permanently. That's what they taught. They understood that the Messiah would have to come from the Davidic line, the line of David, because the promise had been given back to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They knew this. Jesus knew this. And the prophets Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel all told of the heir of David that would sit on the throne forever. We read this in the Old Testament. And that's why the scriptures record the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes all the way back to David. Mary is a direct descendant of David. So Jesus is directly of David's bloodline. Joseph was also a direct descendant of David, establishing Jesus' right to the throne of David as Joseph's legal heir. So this is why we have these genealogies in our New Testament. Then there's this phrase, the son of David. It's been applied to Jesus just three days earlier by the multitudes who had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. <coughs> Excuse me. He's coming in, they're singing. They're singing something called Hosanna. But they're adding to it. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is what they were saying. This is what they were singing. The next day, the children in the temple shouted the same thing. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna means save us, we pray. Like, Lord, have mercy. So together they're crying out, save us, we pray, son of David, Messiah. That's what they're saying to Jesus. So on both occasions, some of the religious leaders were upset about this, and they asked Jesus to make them stop. Jesus, tell these people to shut up. You know, during his triumphal entry, Luke records that Jesus says that if the people don't shout, the very stones will shout it out. That next day, the boys in the temple were shouting the same thing, driving the leaders nuts, and Jesus told them that, that uh, God had prepared for himself the praise from the young children. In other words, on both occasions, Jesus made it very plain that he was accepting what the people and the children were saying about him because it was true. And that title was part of the prophecy of the angel back in Luke chapter 1. So it, we see what's happening at the end of Matthew really is intertwined in all of Scripture. And if we go back to Luke 1.32, Jesus would be given the throne of his father, David. David was... Jesus was the son of David, the Messiah. He was. The religious leaders didn't like this because Jesus didn't fit their preconceived and tightly held notions that the Messiah would be a conquering hero who would throw off the Roman aggression. <coughs> they expected personally to fully benefit when the Messiah would come and not be exposed or opposed for who they really were, when, which is exactly what Jesus was doing to them. They knew that the Messiah, the Christ, was to be a descendant of David. But Jesus makes his claim to be both 
the Christ, the Son of David, and the Son of God. How can he be both? Again, this is theology. This is what we have to wrestle through. Jesus was about to show the Pharisees how their theology failed to line up with the Scriptures. So he turns their attention, he turns his audience's attention to Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah to come. This is the passage that all the Jews knew really well. And he said to them, how is it then? Now listen to his questions. How is it then that David, who's writing Psalms, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, kind of confusing. I get all the easy passages. I really appreciate that. The Psalm is written by King David. And as Jesus says, David wrote this psalm by the Holy Spirit. This is not just some poetic musing of David, but God, the Holy Spirit, using David to reveal divine truth. The truth revealed is a conversation that takes place. The first Lord that we read mentioned is the covenant name for God, which we usually pronounce as Jehovah or Yahweh. All right? The second Lord, you know, another... Lord mentioned, again, our English language isn't as descriptive as Jewish, but it's Adonai, which means David's Lord, uh, which Jesus indicates is the Christ, is the Messiah. That may not be so clear in your English text unless your version actually has capital Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters in there. Some English texts don't, but maybe yours does. It's very clear when you look into the Hebrew text because they're very two distinct words. Remember that the Jews tried to be so careful that they would never say God's name in vain, that they would not use his covenant name. Instead, whenever they came to his name in any text, they would simply say, Lord, they would keep it different instead of Jehovah or Yahweh. Our English texts follow suit with, you know, some putting the name Yahweh in all capital letters. So when you're reading your text and it says, Lord, it's all uppercase, then you know what, what is actually written. That's Jehovah, Yahweh. So David is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Yahweh said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath my feet. So God the Father says to God the Son to sit at his right side until all his enemies would be subdued before him. That will occur. At the, same, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Jesus' point here is that David called the Messiah his Lord before the Messiah had become his son. He, now we're getting into theology. You're tracking with me. Like, how could this be? But this is the passage. And there's only one way that this could be, that the Christ could not be just a mere man. The Messiah can't be just a mere man. That Jesus the Christ existed prior to David and was his Lord. Yet the Christ was also the direct descendant of David. And that's exactly what Jesus is claiming of himself, that he existed prior to becoming a man and was, in fact, equal with God. Wow. Like, I get tired after this. But the crazy thing is, is that this actually comes up several places. The most direct place it comes up is in John 8, where Jesus tells him before Abraham was, I am using the very name God gave for himself to Moses. Again, backtracks to the Old Testament. Moses was asked, uh, you know, asked who, he, who would he tell the Egyptians that was sending him when he and God are having a conversation. God looks at Moses and says, tell him I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. 
So Jesus is saying, I am. Jesus existed prior not only to David, but also to Abraham as well. And he existed as the I am. He's claiming to be God in John. The Messiah can't be just a mere human being, but must also be God who became a man. That's what Christmas, people. Now we're in Christmas. Oh, man, Jerry, you're taking us through all the scripture. Yes, welcome to theology. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not about a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. It's not about Mary and Joseph. It's not about angels singing to shepherds. It's not about wise men coming from the east. You know, it all, all that is, it's all important. It is because it all has its place, but it's secondary to what has occurred. What God has just accomplished is what is central. God had become human. Emmanuel, God with us. God in human flesh is here. The promise of redemption was unfolding before their very eyes. The virgin birth, right? The manger scene itself has been so romanticized that you think of it as almost being attractive. How wonderful for Mary and Joseph and Jesus to be there in that cozy cozy place with so much attention given to them at that time of the birth, right? Let's remember this. This is a stable. Jesus is lying in a feeding trough for animals. Ladies, any of you want to give birth in a barn where the ground is covered with straw and you only have oil lamps for a light or a fire on the ground? You know, the best place that you could find to lay your new baby is a feeding trough? Like, come on. This is crazy stuff. You know, but yet we romanticize the manger scene to be, but yet this is something that God intended. God's incomprehensible love for mankind, a love generated not anything in man, but because of his own nature, a love so great that he humbled himself to become a man in the lowest of lows. That he would become and identify with common people and then eventually redeem them of their sins by dying in their place. And when you think of Christmas and you see the manger thing scene, we have to think of God's love. We have to think of him humbling himself to becoming a man. We have to think of his dying in our place to save us from our sins and bring us back into our relationship with himself. People's heads are spinning as Jesus is talking. He's asking questions. He's quoting scripture and he asks another question. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You know, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Basically, is the kind of conversation that's going on. The answer is that the Messiah is both David's Lord and David's son, both God and man. As God, he is David's Lord. As man, he is David's son. How could he save us unless he was both the son of God with the authority and the man who knows our need from within? The problem which the leaders had with Jesus was his authority, which was rooted in his identity. You know, Jesus was a man who acted like God. We see that. Because he was what theologians call the God-man. God incarnate. God in human flesh. If the Jewish leaders didn't like this, they actually had to take the matter up with God in the scriptures, for this is not what, you know, just what Jesus claimed, but this is actually what the scriptures are teaching. Even David, whose son was to be the Messiah, spoke of him as his Lord. If the deity of Jesus Christ were granted, everything which he did and said would be explained and vindicated. 
the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that he became flesh, is the foundation of everything which he did and said. If we reject this truth, and Jesus' Jesus's authority is nullified, if we reject it, if we accept it, we have to submit to him as our Lord and Savior. The leaders of the nation did not reject Jesus' deity because they failed to understand his claim to be God. He explained it to them nor because the Old Testament failed to indicate that the Messiah would be both divine and human. But if they accepted that, they would have to require these guys to submit to his authority, to obey him, to worship him, to repent of their sin, to stop receiving glory and praise and preeminence which their leadership roles had come to provide for them. In other words, it would have to be a complete life and attitude change for them. Like any good theological discussion, the conversation stops and people are looking like deer in headlights. Jesus asks a series of questions. He takes a text that they know very well. He explains it very clearly to them. And he leaves them stunned. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask them any more questions. Now, either he's talking circles or he's telling the truth. And sometimes when you tell the truth, you silence your critics right there. And that's what Jesus was saying. Look, I'm the God-man. I'm both the son of David and the son of God. You know, some of us might, because we're not really versed in the Bible, and we go, well, son of David, what does that mean? Well, basically, he was from the line of the lineage of. So... In, in, in these times, if you came from David's line and you were a male, you were a son of David. But he's also the son of God. He makes it very clear. He stops all conversation. No one in the crowd that day had an answer for him. No one dared question him. They didn't try to, they didn't intend to trap, like Jesus didn't intend to trap them with his answers as they tried to do to him. But What Jesus was trying to do was trying to instruct them in a truth. A truth that they refused to believe. And the truth was that the expected Messiah is God. And Jesus totally stumps the Pharisees who wanted to believe in a human Messiah, but they didn't want to believe in a divine Messiah. And now all his opponents are silenced. So what does this mean? I, I honestly believe that I can't give you a theology lesson in 40 minutes, 45 minutes. That makes perfect sense. As a matter of fact, this is something that you're going to have to take back and ruminate and think about for it. And just let it fester. Unless you have come to the conclusion, because making a decision about Jesus Christ is literally a matter of life and death. You know, the evidence really is there for everybody to examine. And, and the way that we can examine things is that we can examine things defensively and miss the truth because we want to have our own preconceived ideas, much like the Jewish leaders of the time, while we, our Messiah is going to be a political ruler who's going to cast it off. Well, guys, how's that going for you since 2,000 years later? Or does the Messiah have a divine component to it? And so on the other hand, I think what we have to do is we have to examine it honestly and humbly and discover the truth, believe, and be saved. The religious leaders were actually so blinded by tradition, they were blinded by position, 
they were blinded by selfish pride that they could not and would not see the truth and receive it. In one day, Jesus annihilated and humiliated the wisdom and the cunning of the leaders of each of Israel's religious organizations and shot them out of the sky. He did not try to prove that he was God, the Son, the Messiah. He would reserve actually that. He, his proof is later. Oh, I thought he just did the proof. No, no, no. This was the theology lesson. This is the schooling. The proof comes later. The proof actually comes at his resurrection. Because the resurrection proved who he was and whom he said he was. But they completely refused to see him. And so right now, in the temple, they're completely baffled by his wisdom. They stop trying to trick him with questions. And here afterwards, they're going to use another method, and the method is violence. And so, my wife's voice is always in the back of the head, make it practical, make it practical, make it practical. Okay, how do you make this lesson practical? Well, here's the question. What's your response? Who is Jesus? son is he? Because Jesus' claim is very clear, it's very direct. He's the son of David, but he has no earthly father. He's the son of God and the son of Mary. He is fully God, he is fully man. The miracle of the virgin conceiving a child by the work of the Holy Spirit, what Christmas is all about. These are all things that we as Christians, when we recite our creeds, believe. And the one who has eternally existed, entered time and space, has come down. That's Jesus' claim. That's what the scriptures teach. But what do you say? Who's Jesus? And who's Jesus to you? Let's pray. Father, we come now in a moment of prayer and we're thankful for the Messiah who's our Savior, perfect God, to win the victory over death and hell and sin and Satan. God who alone could defeat the grave. God who alone could break the power of sin. And he had to be God to have power of that magnitude. And he had to be a man. How else could he take on the place of man? How could he be a substitute for humankind? And so Jesus came, perfect God, perfect man, dying as man for us to defeat sin. And we know that by believing in him that we have eternal life. While your heads are bowed for a moment, if you've never opened your life to Jesus and you find that there's just an awakening in your, in your heart of faith and who he is, Maybe there's a new vision and a new perspective that has been put there, not by me, but by the Holy Spirit. I actually trust that you'll respond. You know, Jesus doesn't need our patronization. He doesn't need any accolades or sentiments from us, which are really insu insufficient to proclaim who he really is. Who's Jesus? He's David's son. He's David's Lord. He's the son of man, the son of God. He's nothing less than that. And coming to him with anything other than that is actually an act. But if you believe that, 
I want to encourage you today just to receive him as your Savior. And when we do that, he applies forgiveness to us. Our sins are washed away. The gift of everlasting life becomes ours. That's what he offers. <clears throat> he offers us strength when we are weak, hope when we are dismayed. whose lives are broken by distress. He offers us healing to restore us. For those whose lives are broken by fear, He offers us healing to restore us. For those of li whose lives are broken by pain, He offers us healing to restore us those of us whose lives are broken by illness, he offers us healing to restore us. For those whose lives are broken by sin, he offers us healing to restore us. He's the God of healing who gently touches our lives, who brings warmth and comfort and life and wholeness and restoration into fractured lives and fractured souls. This is who Jesus is, but who do you say he is? And if you accept him as the son of David, if you accept him as the Messiah, the Christ, how does that affect the way that you live? Oh, wait, wait. 
loving Father, the resurrected Son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now go and live in the church.